Hello and welcome to the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Talking Euretina. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leading experts from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this episode, we're going to look at the challenges and opportunities that face women in retina. Professor Anat Lowenstein, General Secretary of Uretina, will join Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland to explore some of these issues in the context of ophthalmology and research in general. But I wanted to start off looking at this from the individual level, and we have a fantastic guest for you. I'm delighted to be joined by Sally Helgeson. Uh, she's described by Forbes as the world's premier expert in women's leadership. She's an internationally best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach whose books include Why Women Rise, The Female Vision, and Thriving in 24-7. Uh, Sally, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the opportunities and, and, and strategies for women to thrive in their roles. And I, I want to just touch on the fact that I know that a lot of your clients are in the corporate world, but the things that I was reading about in How Women Rise, these are really universal to an individual, right? Well, that has been the big finding since How Women Rise came out in, in uh, 2018. I have been surprised, frankly, at how resonant this is across sectors, marine biologists to Japanese banks to utility companies to uh, women physicians. Uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, work with physicians lately. And so it cuts across sector, cuts across levels to an extent that, again, surprises me. Most senior women say, this has really helped me. It's helped me understand myself better. It's helped me understand my career path better. And it helps me to mentor other women and identify their internal barriers so I can help them work with it. Uh, And it's been a a resident across culture in a way that has taken my breath away. We've sold in 22 languages. I know we are on audio only for this, but you can probably see my Mongolian edition behind my head. So that <laughs> has been really extraordinary to see the, the resonance in cultures as different, and they don't get much more different than Japan and Brazil, where the book has done very well. So um, this is universal ideas uh, applied to how we can enable and be an ally to women as they, they progress in their career as women leaders. And in ophthalmology, this is um, as important as it is in any other field. The role played by women is immense, uh, with more than 50% of ophthalmologists being women, and yet women representation at leadership level drops to only 10% holding leadership positions, worse than many um, other disciplines. And uh, what was really interesting from uh, the Uretina Women uh, in Retina report was that over four out of 10 women felt the biggest barrier to career advancement was a corporate culture that favors men. So let's talk about how to survive in that environment. And um, one of the things that you talk about in uh, How Women Rise is the reluctance that uh, people have to claim achievements to sort of signal what you, you've done and expecting people to notice your own achievements without drawing attention to them. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because to me, that would seem like a, a, something that would be very typical in America, but in Europe, less so. But this, this is a universal thing. Well, that's what I have certainly found. And I do want to say this. 
there are cultural and structural issues that women need to confront that and those have improved at least in my observation over the last decades but they're still there there's still many old boys networks that are in place that are hard for women to penetrate and that are really an essential part of positioning yourself as leaders the work i do uh, or the work I've done most recently with How Women Rise has been looking at the internal barriers that hold women back. And this is not to blame women or to say, you know, it's because of women. It is, I, I believe it's helpful to look at internal barriers because they lie within our control. Whereas until we reach positions of real influence and authority, the cultural and structural barriers are harder to uh, address, and they do not lie within our control unless we're, you know, in part yeah. of the big movement. So, so this is a typical example of an internal barrier. You're reluctant to claim your achievements. You fear being seen as arrogant or all about me. You fear taking away from what your team has done uh, by talking about what you have achieved. So you back off. You decide not to do it. If somebody says that was a good job you do, you did, you say, oh, my team was wonderful, without ever articulating what your responsibility was. And often the idea is you're uncomfortable. You don't know how to talk about it. feels awkward to you. And so you adopt a passive strategy of hoping or expecting people will notice. I've traveled the world for 35 years. Women have always said, well, I believe if I do great work, people should notice. Or I believe if I do great work, people will notice. People often don't notice. And um, you get noticed through building relationships and through positioning yourself to get noticed. So it's important to do that work. It is vital to find a way to talk about your achievements that you're comfortable with and make sure that you get recognized for what you have contributed. Often the language of contribution makes this easier rather than the language of achievements. Uh, but it's, it's really important because if you don't, you feel under-recognized and undervalued. Well, certainly in, in most of Europe, the tendency, uh, in my experience, is for people to not want to take claim for any of the work they've done. Absolutely. But how do you do that in a culture that expects people not to put their head above the parapet? How do you um, make sure that people do notice? Do you have any practical advice on how to make sure people notice your achievements without seeming pushy or arrogant? Well, I think you can do it without being arrogant, uh, pushy or self-serving. It's recognizing, again, it's not an either or, and also thinking in terms of using the language. There are two ways I would suggest. One is using the language of contribution so that you can say, for example, our team was able to achieve this. Uh, here was some of the response we got. You know, this was how our data was received by our colleagues. Here was an award we got. Here was what some customers, what the feedback we got, patients, the feedback we got was from them. This was a real success. My contribution was. Now, this is helpful information to people, what your contribution was. Hmm. It's also being very accurate. You're not claiming credit, but you're putting yourself in the picture. Guess what? You belong in the picture. You belong in the picture. You made a contribution. You were part of the team. So you want people to know what that is. So that is a very 
graceful way of, of doing this, of positioning yourself, but also giving the uh, credit to the team. Mm. I found it to be highly effective. I've recommended this to thousands of women, literally, and heard them getting good results and feeling very comfortable saying it. So that's a, a that's a real positive in, in terms of that. And I often find women are, are, and other people who aren't big on bragging or talking about themselves are comfortable with that language of contribution. Another thing that's really useful is to think of something you've done in terms of being information that could be helpful to another person. It's something you've achieved, but it could be helpful. And you frame it in your mind that way. Oh, this could be very helpful to him if he knew that I had done this because he's, you know, embarking on a similar project. So when you do that, you say, I think you might find this information, using that word, framing whatever your language is, framing that word information, I think this information could be helpful to you. Um, this is what I did, and here was the outcome. So good ways to do it. Absolutely, and I, I suppose it also fights against any un, unintended bias where the listener is it may assume that the contribution was even across the team where your contribution might have been significant within that work. One of the other things you talk about in How Women Rise is is leveraging relationships. And again, this is something that some people might feel um, less comfortable with. They, they want to think of relationships as being organic and that you are in some way uh, being um, manipulative um, if you leverage your relationships with, with colleagues and peers. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, what, what you think the, the barrier is there and how we overcome it? Well, I think it's um, you know it's a it's a embedded in how women build relationships. It's often very focused on the relationship, and uh, it took me a long time before I began to realize where that this was a problem. Um, I assumed that because women tend to be very skilled at building relationships, that as the capacity to build strong relationships became more likely to be recognized as a leadership strength rather than a soft strength, et cetera, as, as was happening in the 90s, that women would benefit from that, but they did not. So I, I began ta asking women, you know, you've developed all these relationships. Are you good at asking the people that you have relationships with for help when you need it, either tactical, that is job-related, or strategic, more career-related support? Are you comfortable with that? Oh, no, no. Why not? I don't want people to think I'm a user, or um, I want people to know that I really value them as friends. Those things are great, that's terrific, but it doesn't mean you can't also be a resource to one another. And one of the reasons I'm so pleased that this word allies has come into the language of business and the language of development is that that's what really leveraging is about. It's about saying to someone, I'm here for you and and I'd like to engage you also in helping me. So it's a reciprocal kind of relationship building. A, a, a German company did a big uh, study and the conclusion of the study is that women's, even very senior women's networks were less effective in terms of their career positioning than senior male networks. And the reason they concluded is because men tended to be comfortable leveraging and engaging. 
And I think that one of the reasons that men are good at this is they often feel that they have something to offer. You know, hey, you're lucky you know me because I'm going to places and, you know, you, you can hitch your, uh, you know, your wagon to me. But and, and women are less likely to think that way. So it's a question in, to some degree of confidence, but it's also a question really rest, recognizing that this leveraging is about developing a very reciprocal framework in terms of how you think about your relationships. Uh, you can help me, I can help you. It's a very, very powerful way to be in the world. And women's networks benefit most when they adapt some of the practices of old boys networks while losing the elitism and the, the barriers. So they adapt the practice of, hey, we're here to recommend one another. If we hear jo about jobs, we're gonna recommend you. But you'll recommend us. It, it, it's really a great way to build your career. Um, finally, um, when we make mistakes, I think um, your work seems to show that men view their mistakes differently to women. And I'm wondering how should we deal with mistakes and how should women deal with the mistakes that they make and the expectations of, of others? Well, I think uh, this goes to our old friend, uh, which is one of the habits in the book, The Perfection Trap, which is believing that basically you must be perfect or you're failing. So it's another either or, perfect or failing. There's no area in between. And organizations actually encourage this in women because uh, research finds that women tend to be promoted based on the perception that they are precise and correct in everything they do, whereas men tend to be promoted based upon their, their visibility, their connections, and being perceived as a big picture thinker. This is across the board. Um, universities, very much the same. Mm. So uh, because of that, women often get the, women are rewarded for being precise and correct. So they get the idea, this is, this is the path forward. But the costs of perfectionism become very high as you move up, not least in terms of the amount of stress you cause, not just for yourself, but for others, because mm. you have more people that are accountable to you so so that that you know that becomes highly problematic and that can lead to an expectation that mistakes are not allowed mistakes are how we learn if we articulate our team our culture our group as a learning culture and i think this was one of the great insights decades ago of Peter Senge's work, a learning culture. How do we create a culture that learns well and learns with some degree of rapidity and learns broadly? We, we, learn, we learn by making mistakes. You know that, I know that. I learn the most from my mistakes. And so when we put a stress on everything has to be perfect, we're closing the door on a learning culture. So I think two things are helpful. Number one is saying, you know, our team is going to be learning. This is this. We want to learn. We want to get better. That means we will make mistakes. Uh, personally, to get rid of, you know, one of the things that's effective in helping you get over your perfection is actually, you know, banners, stickies, mantras, things like that, reminders that it's not helpful. Um, so that's that's also useful. But what I find most useful is really trying to define things as our goal is excellence, not perfection. Those are two different things. Did a program yesterday at a big Japanese bank in um, in Manhattan, 
and they had some serious audiovisual issues and you know various things it, it, they were just little snafus the program was wonderful it was wonderful and at the end the planner came up to me and she said i i'm sorry so many this was not perfect and i said no it was excellent it was excellent hmm. and that's 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 very good way to um to help us let go of the idea that you know perfect is what we're striving for there is actually one more final question. I, I lied to you, Sally, and it is because it came from the report and it is uh, the, the fact that women uh, in retina do find it more difficult to talk about and negotiate pay, even though there is a gender pay gap. They find it more difficult to do that and don't have the confidence. This is data from the report. So this is obviously a key negotiation technique, no matter what you're doing. but. How how should women approach this um, lack of confidence when it comes to negotiating pay? You know, I think the really helpful thing for women, because there is a lot of reluctance around this, and some of it is is based in expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions, which we were talking about earlier. You know, they didn't notice. First of all, before you go into any kind of ne negotiation, spend a couple months keeping a record of what you've done that was successful. We forget. We forget the things we've done that are successful. We forget what some of those outcomes are. We forget what some of the rankings are. So keep that log so you don't forget. And then before you go into the negotiation, review that. And then don't take that burden on alone. Go to a colleague. Go to somebody you know, it's somebody who, who knows the situation, perhaps knows the person you could be negotiating with and say, look, I've got to do some negotiation. This is what I've been historically poor at. I end up backing off. I end up saying, okay, next year. And then next year, there's another reason, et cetera. Um, I've been gathering some information that I think will be persuasive. Uh, and here's how I'm thinking of framing my um, opening at the negotiation and then run it through with someone. So it and and, and have them, you know, if, if you have any critiques, do you have any suggestions? You don't have to take their suggestions. They might be off the mark. But just having gone through that process, having set, having sat down with another human being and gone through it really helps in terms of uh, you know, the, the likelihood that it's going, you're going to deliver it with more confidence and more authority. Um, it, and it gives you a feeling of being supported. So I think that's, that's really important if you recognize you've had that history of, of doing that. And, and then, you know, I, I do a lot of negotiating because I do a lot of work, but I also find it helpful to really look at, you know, what is the client's budget here? And, you know, what, what's, the, what's the usual thing that's going on? so that I get a, a real sense of, you know, I, that I'm not being underpaid if I'm accepting a low payment for something because this is what they do, this is their budget, this is their business, and that I'm not being underpaid if, if they've got a big budget and are paying other people pretty well. Hmm. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant speaking with you uh, and the book is fantastic. If you are um, uh, a woman looking to succeed in uh, in work, whether it's in uh, ophthalmology or beyond, I uh, highly recommend How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson. Sally, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. 
Thank you, Jonathan. And you've just given me the idea that I'm going to take a copy of the book into my ophthalmologist and her daughter, who is also in her practice. <laughs> Brilliant. OK, well, thanks very much again, Sally, and take care. My pleasure. Bye bye. So I'm delighted to be joined now by uh, General Secretary of Euretina, that is Professor Anat Lowenstein from Tel Aviv in Israel, and by Dr. Ruth Freeman, Director of Science for Society at Science Foundation Ireland. Anat, uh, we heard there from Sally about many of the universal challenges that women face in the journey to advance their careers from uh, trying to negotiate better pay to internal barriers to uh, the differences between men's and women's approaches to mistakes and expectations of women. I'm wondering, is that something that you see reflected in the Women in Retina, your Retina survey? Would you tell me a little bit about the Retina survey and what it found, please? Yeah, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, I think this, uh, these challenges are pretty universal. And uh, I, I actually think uh, for myself for a long time that uh, these challenges are, are very significant. In the U-Retina board, we embarked on the project of the, that is called Women in Retina. And we started with this survey that actually wanted to see uh, what are the needs of women in the retina field. And for that, we did uh, a global survey that included um, something like 800 people, both men and women. And uh, we, we really uh, tried to understand what is it that bothers uh, both the women and the men in terms of the women's status uh, in the field of retina. And uh, the, many of the challenges that were expressed uh, in the podcast are, are uh, expressed also uh, for women in new retina. Um, for example, as compared to male counterparts, women are much less likely to be extremely satisfied with their work, even though the majority are pretty confident in their role. There are many that have uh, that have difficulties and that feel that uh, they 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 are not confident enough. And um, while uh, most of the men said that there are uh, many opportunities for people like them to succeed, for women, the percentage of people who, who thought that there are opportunities for them to succeed enough as they wished was almost half than that of men. Uh, and also similarly was the feeling of the women uh, regarding the support that they are getting for their career. And uh, also most women felt that it is difficult to establish a career that will also uh, hold together with uh, uh, acceptable family lifestyle and with having children. Most of the men did not appreciate this as a problem. Also, most women f did feel that women are treated unfairly in many issues and more women feel that their pay is not reflective of their work. Uh, basically, I think that what is universal is the feeling of women that uh, they are not expected to succeed as their male counterparts and the willing of the system to, to help them in this regard. So that was not different. We had many other findings in the survey as well. One of the things that really stood out to me was how a corporate culture is perceived to favor men. And that, that was one of the really interesting findings from this report, that the biggest issue that women had was not time out of work due to maternity leave. It was actually identified as a corporate culture that favors men. And given that uh, most of the men thought that maternity leave was the biggest problem women faced, I thought that was really striking. What do you make of that? 
So I think this is actually reflective of the fact that many times men perceive the difficulties of women not as the real difficulties that they have. And uh, I think that uh, really the, this cultural issue is crucial. And maybe this is where it all starts. Uh, because uh, while, uh, you know, maternity leave is uh, something that is uh, needed, I can see many uh, men counterparts that have to miss work, not less than that. I, I can give you an example in Israel that men go for a month, a year to the army, to the reserve, and uh, still it's not regarded as a drawback. And uh, I, I feel that many of the... Um, of the institutes and the leaders are uh, looking at maternity leave as, an, as, as a bigger issue than it really is uh, for the women in their career. I think this is something cultural that would be very difficult to change, but we need to start somewhere. One of the things that really resonated, and do you know, Anas, I thought immediately of you was um, leveraging networks and uh, helping other women rise. I know that whenever you talk in a podcast with me, you're always mentioning the successes of other women. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your experiences as a, as a woman and a, a mentor to woman in the field of retina. How did the report reflect your experiences? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I, I have to say that the issue is that many times the problem uh, arises also from the fact that we have the uh, these like uh, men's clubs, not not formal clubs, but uh, you know, if uh, uh, someone needs to choose people for a committee and it's only men there, he's up to choose another man. Uh, so I think that uh, promoting women is uh, is is a, is a very big issue, and uh, I'm really trying to do it. It is reflected in uh, in every as it was in the podcast. It's reflective in any part of my work, uh, and you know, while for many years I thought that uh, you I, you don't, I don't need to pay attention if it's a man or a woman because all all it matters is what the person is uh, worth for this particular. Uh, role but um, seeing everything that uh, is reflected now in many situations i feel that uh, we didn't we do need to push and make sure that um, even uh, a little bit uh, artificially that we are uh, pointing out women to participate in committees in uh, in uh, in leading roles in uh, let's say for example in uh, ophthalmology journals so as editors not only as uh, as a writer, as writers, and as a, as a invited uh, uh, articles, not not only as submitting articles, as uh, moderators and chairs of session, not only as uh, people who are submitting their abstracts. I do need, and I do, and this also goes again with our survey and with what we saw that unfortunately, without paying attention, in our meeting, for example, there was less than ten percent women in each session until we made something to correct it. And a significant change this year with the introduction of new sort of softer policies. And, and it's great to see, Anat, that one simple change in the in the policy of getting better female representation resulted in a, an immediate jump. Let's talk a little bit, Ruth, about the approach to this and the challenges that women in research generally face. Is, is what we're seeing in Eurasia where uh, women are perceived as being in a sort of a male culture and that's one of the biggest barriers to their work. They're finding difficult to be able to negotiate the same sort of pay. They are not the heads of hospitals. They are not often the ones who get the biggest grants. Is that something that is general in research and, and how do we address something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think, as Anat said, these are universal issues. And, and no matter what group we speak to, the same threads keep coming through of the challenges. And 
And look, those challenges start very, very early. One of the things that we do at Science Foundation Ireland is we work with schools and we can see that already at the very early stages in terms of how teaching happens, you know, how how play happens with kids, you know, girls are already treated differently to boys. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of work to do culturally to, to change that. I think when it comes to research, particularly, I use an analogy, which is I think all the evidence shows the playing field's currently not totally flat. So as Anat said, if we just pretend there's no difference, um, we have people operating on a playing field that's not flat. So, so we have a number of measures where I would say we have to tip the playing field a little bit to make sure that it's level. <laughs> and I suppose what that means for us is, I mean, I think you use the term soft interventions. I mean, we currently don't have quotas, for example, in terms of women applying for research. And I think there's a lot of women who don't necessarily want quotas. Uh, we have operated them in the past. And I think women have said, you know, they, they felt people have then said to them, well, you've been funded, but you were funded through a system that was only for women. So perhaps you're not good enough to get funded through a general system. So we've, we've done other things. We've said, okay, well, this is a new program, anyone can apply, and as an institution, you can put forward up to 10 people. But if you put in a gender-balanced cohort, you can put, it, put in up to 20. So, so what that meant was that institutions had to work a little bit harder to find people to put into the, the entry point of the scheme. But what we found was after that, we ended up actually with 50%, actually slightly more than 50% of the, the recipients being women. So I think there are creative ways we can recognize that the playing field isn't level. We can tip it a little bit, but we still have to try and get to the bottom of those systemic issues. I think that what you said now is crucial because all my life I have this conflict between like tipping it towards women and then, okay, so I mean, why she succeeded? Because this grant was uh, painted for women. So uh, and that's not, a, and the way you're describing it, I think is a great solution. It is a really interesting solution because it also sort of sheds light on one of the problems. It's not necessarily bias in the system of adjudication. Uh, that the problem sometimes is that the these institutions are not putting forward women as much as they are as men and that means that there is some, there's sort of some implicit bias associated with that that they think that women are less likely to get through and they don't want to put the resources behind that is that it Ruth? Well I mean there have been studies and I mean you, you mentioned pay and that's critical there have been studies where the same CV with a man's name and a woman's name has been sent to reviewers and they ask them, would you give this person a job? And at what point on the salary scale would you appoint them? And what we see is that the woman's name, they, they generally are less likely to be offered the job. And if they are, they are offered a lower salary. So and that's and actually that's interesting because that's whether the reviewers are men or women. Yeah, so I I think that uh, what you said now is a very important issue, and I think it, there is also a side of the women to that, because many times when they will apply for a job, they are less willing to negotiate on their uh, on their salary and on their benefits and so forth, uh, and this is something that is to be corrected somehow culturally, I don't know if it's even to call it culturally or personally or some uh, psychological disturbance that we have, that uh, men are much more likely to negotiate on their terms than women that tend to accept what they are getting. And I think failure, I mean, that's something we mentioned. Are women 
trained are we brought up that it's okay to fail um and i think a lot of women would say they don't feel comfortable with failure they they, they really find they don't have the tools to manage failure um there's actually a wonderful irish composer called emer noon and she's a conductor as well and she has this amazing talk where she talks about the fact that failing as a conductor is one of the hardest things she'd ever did because she wasn't just failing on her time she had failed on the time of 80 other people who were there having to be part of the orchestra and and i think you know one of the things she's done is she's looking at virtual reality technology so women can practice composing uh, and conducting an orchestra before they have to to get into a room with 80 people but i think there's something about teaching girls that it's okay to fail and, and you dust yourself off and you keep going Part of the uh, the difficulty here is, I suppose, convincing some people that this is an issue that needs to be acted upon and that we don't already have uh, equality. Um, and there was a study in Australia that looked at ophthalmology in particular, it found that women in ophthalmology encounter more bias and discrimination across multiple domains than men. Uh, gender uh, pay gap is wider than in most surgical subspecialties, that women ophthalmologists and trainees report sharply different training experience from their male peers, including fewer opportunities to operate, more bullying and harassment, less access to mentorship, and contrasting expectations around contributions to, to family life. So, the, the, you know, the research seems um, very clear. It's not just a universal problem. It's a very specific problem also in ophthalmology. Ruth, in terms of communicating the need for these changes, there's always going to be pushback here and there. And it comes from very different quarters. As you said, sometimes women don't like um, to have uh, gender quotas. But how do you communicate clearly the need for change in the face of accusations of so-called wokeism or reverse sexism? I mean, I think no matter where you look now, talent is an issue, you know, keeping talent, retaining talent. And, and, you know, certainly in research, a lot of the work that we're doing is around how do we work on really complex challenges like climate change. And I mean, if you're looking at highly specialist work like ophthalmology, you know, we, we need people to be in those fields. So, I mean, I, I think we will lose people if we don't create an environment where everyone can succeed. And I mean, you might call that woke or you might just call it sensible and inclusive. And, and I think one, we, we have to look at the data. I mean, as I said, those data points, which enable us to show that today the playing field is not level, I think they're really important because I think there's a lot of people who would say, look, it's all a, it's a meritocracy. The best people succeed. But we know that's not true. But we have to continue to actually do the research that, to show that, because I think that that's our defense. Now, you might argue like, you know, facts aren't going to get in the way of communication. You know, communication is much more about how people respond. It's not just about giving them reams of data. But I think even having the, the research done gives organizations and people the confidence to stand behind their initiatives because they know it's backed up by data. So it's not that the data is kind of the, the headline in the story. I think actually for me, the success is when, when, when we run programs and we see that the people coming through at more equal levels, what we actually want to do is to talk about what those people are going to achieve. I mean, I think in ophthalmology, we want to highlight successes um, and, and they may have come from our interventions, but that's where the communication has to start. Imagine the field of ophthalmology without Professor so-and-so or without Professor so-and-so. And I think that we need to tell our stories as, as women 
to say, look, somebody removed this barrier for me or somebody introduced me to this network or someone gave me this chance because, you know, those are the interventions that worked for some of us. I think that one of the ways to cope with this um, feelings that the women themselves have is by way of mentorship. Uh, I think that uh, mentorship by senior other fem- women or even males that are uh, open to this and that can uh, walk you through your internal positioning in your institute or lab or department, your external positioning among your other peers, your negotiation uh, when you start a new project in, in the new environment that uh, you will be in, uh, your networking needs. I think that having a senior woman in your institute that you that will walk you through this or not even in your institute even internationally you know i've been participating in many uh, mentorship program where i my mentee was in greece and uh, for example i can give you an, an example of this mentee that uh, at the beginning said that uh, she thinks that as a woman in greece she has no chances to develop international relationship and slowly together we built a program how to make her known internationally there were some things that I really just helped do it, like invite her to international meetings, but uh, something that I just gave her tools. And uh, I also learned a lot from this mentor-mentee relationship, but I think that this can be something that will be very helpful for women. What are the uh, initiatives currently being explored by Uretina to address some of the inequalities we see? Yeah, so for uh, the Uretina, there are a few a few things that uh, we are doing. First of all, it was the intervention, so to say, uh, that we did for uh, with the meetings. Yes, that now we are uh, uh, we didn't again we didn't want to 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 give an exact exact number. You have to uh, you have to have fifty percent women, but uh, we we aimed to at least. 20% and uh, I know it I know I know it said <laughs> but uh, but still it's um I think it's something and as you said it, it made a very big difference so I think the fact that we are really emphasizing this is one very very important program we wanted to have a, a grant painted for women but we had the same uh, controversies uh, between ourselves or the same debates between ourselves if it should be done or not or should not be done exactly because of the of the reasons that you mentioned Ruth that it might uh, do an opposite role that it uh, that is uh, that is supposed to be but uh, we and we wrote a white paper you know you know about it that actually uh, emphasizes the the findings of the survey and what uh, and what we need to do and uh, we have a, a big online forum that we are doing um, webcasts and meetings once uh, at least a month either a webcast or a debate or a, a small course and uh, there it's our responsibility to make sure that there is gender equality and uh, we are planning to have uh, a, a series of uh, virtual talks by experts that will actually help in the professional development. For example, to deal with imposter syndrome, uh, looking at it, at the, at the roots of it and how to solve it. I, I know 20% doesn't seem like a lot, but the, the, there was, a, as you say, a big jump um, in those numbers. And to me, getting a submission, if I was a, someone looking at these uh, submissions, to get a submission that included eight men would say a lot to me about 
the fact that there is no woman amongst the uh, eight men that has anything to contribute to this conversation that would raise a red flag for me and i, I would personally be thinking we need to fix this uh, rather than submit uh, a session with eight men on, on on a particular board you talked there about imposter syndrome and i wanted to talk about your experiences of being a woman leader in the field of retina and the expectations uh, that are upon your shoulders you talked about imposter syndrome do do you experience a sort of a second guessing of your work? Are you expected to be perfect? Do you feel like you are held to a different standard in retina? Before talking about different standards in retina, let me talk about different standards in being a chair of a department. So, you know, in being a chair of a department, if you're a man and you're very strict, then you're very strict. If uh, you are a woman and you're very strict, then you are something else. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, and this is really, I, I find it frustrating because uh, for men, it's uh, met with admiration. For women, it's met with um, some kind of dissatisfaction. Uh, so this is something uh, to, that is important. Uh, now, regarding my role in retina, uh, yes, I find that uh, putting myself in the role of retina surgeons is not easy. And there is a tendency uh, always to put women in the, if I'm talking within retina, in the medical side and not in the surgical side. I'm an expert in both. And most of the time I, I would be asked to talk about medical retina things. And uh, it took me a few years to overcome uh, the imposter syndrome when I was talking about surgery. So I guess for a woman who just starts and she starts to be a leader in the field, it can be a little difficult, and I see it in uh, in young uh, retina surgeons. And just on the side, there something that did come out of, come out of that Australia report was that women didn't get enough uh, opportunities in surgery to, to to practice techniques. Is that something that you you witnessed yourself? So you know, the, I'm I'm exposed to this in my department. In my department, of course, there is no difference between what a man gets or a woman, except one thing that they get uh, twice a maternity leave that can go up to six months. And uh, from this, let's say, 12 months, uh, six months are counted in their residency time. So they have six months less to operate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a tough call because you cannot say, okay, so other times they'll operate more on, you know, on the account of the others who are not on maternity leave. Yeah. It is a tough call in this regard. And I have to say that I'm very strict. What you missed, you missed. But uh, I can tell you that uh, my daughter, for example, she's uh, in, in, the, in the industry business, in corporate, and she says that in corporate, it's not that way, that they are trying to uh, pay for the, time, for the opportunities that the women are missing during maternity leave and give them the opportunities in a, on a more often basis in the rest of the time. So she says I'm very old-fashioned in this, that I should do something. <laughs> Ruth, um, our, our children will shape us, um, won't they? Ruth, what would your final thoughts be on, on this? Where can we find opportunities to level the playing field across uh, pay and opportunities in uh, research and in, uh, in retina? I mean, I think it's really important in any of these discussions to point out that women are not broken. It's the system that, that doesn't fit necessarily because it wasn't set up with women in mind. A lot of systems have been around for 50, 100 years. And I think, you know, as you said, in terms of training, I mean, that is a system that's set up with a particular timing, with a particular framework around it. 
and, and it doesn't necessarily work right now. So I think we need to be not scared to start again. Sometimes we just have to look at something and say, how do we, if we were starting again and we wanted this to be truly inclusive and allow really the best people to come through, not just the best people that can, can succeed in the artificial system that we've built, what would we do? And I think we need to be really brave sometimes and, and, and sort of look at some of those sacred cows and say, maybe we need to change because ultimately we will all do better if we allow opportunities for people to go into these fields. And that's a win for everybody. I mean, this isn't a women's problem and the women aren't broken. You know, we need to change. We need to look at the problem from the other side. That's what I would say. Anat? Yeah, I, I agree. But I do think that there is something uh, in the women that needs to be changed in this regard and the way they look at themselves. Many women, I'm not <laughs> talking necessarily about you or me, but for many women, there is something within themselves that needs to change. I wouldn't say that the women are broken, but... I can give you another example from my daughter who said that uh, when uh, she would come to a meeting and there is a, a table in the center with chairs around it, but also chairs around the wall. So, you know, unless she leads the meeting, she would sit in the chair around the wall. Once there was a meeting of the same group with the spouses and their husband came immediately, he sat at the center table, you know, he didn't yes. even think twice. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, this is something that, sh that she could correct in herself uh, or uh, more... Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And building confidence is really important, of course. Um, but I think it's much more easy to be confident in a system that you feel will embrace diversity and, and yes. people being different. And, you know, those different kinds of personalities and different ways of operating, I think we see produce things like more creative solutions. And, you know, sometimes the person who's less confident might question something and say, Are we, is this definitely the right? Should, should we think about this again? I'm not totally confident in my first decision. So I think it is about embracing that diversity of thinking and, and, and not everyone's going to be the same. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that um, getting these systems to understand that there's lots of different types of people who express themselves in lots of different ways and that this diversity is a good thing, then we're well on our way to a, a more equal and more inclusive world. Uh, Professor Anat Lowenstein, General Secretary of Euretina and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you very much. Well, I really enjoyed that discussion. I hope you did too. If you'd like to read the survey uh, and find out more about the Women in Retina programme, you can do so on uretina.org. Just a note, on December 20th, there will be another Uretina Case Club, organised this time by Professor Eduardo Medena from Italy. The Case Club will be chaired by Nomi Lois in the UK and Elizabeth Pilotto in Italy. Five cases will be presented and discussed by an all-female faculty. We'll see some fascinating and educational cases that really help us understand how research gets put to work in the clinic. Registration will be open on the Uretina website very soon. If you'd like to comment on this podcast or indeed have something to suggest for a future podcast, we would love to hear from you. Podcast at uretina.org. We're going to take a break until early January, where we'll be back bringing you some more of the world's best experts, bringing you the latest science from the world of retina. Have a great break, however you celebrate it. We'll see you next time.